Welcome to Death, Lies, and Alibis. I'm your host, Christy, and this is the podcast that dives deep into the dark and eerie world of local cold cases. We're in a small, lovely town in the heart of Ohio. It's filled with tight-knit neighborhoods, friendly faces, and a sense of that small-town security. But beneath the idyllic surface lies a hidden darkness, a collection of unanswered questions that need answers now. So grab your headphones, lock your doors, and prepare to enter a world where the truth has invaded everyone. Hi, folks. I'm so glad you're here. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, I'm happy you're here, and I do hope you stick around till the end. Okay, so Jimmy Frecker, just 46, was the kind of guy who lived quietly but meant a lot to those around him. He wasn't one to stir the pot or to be the center of attention. Jimmy was born on a chilly November day back in 1943 in Pontiac, Michigan. He wasn't the type to brag about his roots, but his upbringing in that hardworking town, well, it shaped him into the man he became. Even though Jimmy wasn't loud or outgoing, he was always there when you needed him. If a neighbor needed a hand with something, Jimmy was the guy quietly showing up, ready to help. He wasn't one for big speeches or drawing attention to himself, but his actions spoke volumes. A dear friend told us and described him as a big part of their family. In fact, he often said that they were the only real family that Jimmy ever had. They all loved Jimmy dearly. He was always at their house, he said, for holiday gatherings, family parties, and he even named vacations. Anything that involved family, Jimmy was a part of it, the friend said. His faith was a big deal to him, too. He was a regular at the Pine Street Westland Church, and it wasn't just a Sunday thing for him. His belief was deep and true, guiding him through the everyday ups and downs. It gave him, you know, like that strength, a sense of belonging, something that he valued a lot. Jimmy's daily life might have looked plain to you and me, but it was just his way. He went to work at the plant, riding his bike around town, enjoying a beer now and then. That was just Jimmy's rhythm. But one chilly night in March of 1990, Jimmy's world, and that of Muskingum counties, was turned upside down. He was found in his home, and it was clear he had met a gruesome end. This is how this quiet, normal, middle-aged man made headlines in his local paper. James Frecker, 46 years old, found dead at 2290 Looking View Road, March 24, 1990. Now, the grim discovery of Jimmy's body was made by his roommate, you know, someone who shared his living space, his daily routines. I mean, can you imagine the shock and the horror of finding your friend in such a horrible way? It was around 7.30 in the evening when he came upon the scene, and the details are just chilling. Jimmy had sustained horrific injuries. His scalp, well, it bore most of the trauma, split wide open. And he was beaten so severely was just it's just hard to comprehend the brutality of the attack. They said blood was on the walls, the furniture, the carnage was everywhere. By the time he was found, Jimmy had already been dead for many hours. The cold, silent reality of that scene, oh my goodness, it had to be overwhelming. Jimmy's injuries paint a picture of a violent encounter. Initially, a machinist hammer was found at the scene, and it was considered the possible murder weapon. But as the investigators looked closer, things didn't quite add up. 
So they focused on the possibility that another heavy metal object was used in this brutal act. And this shift in the investigation raised questions about the nature of the attack. I mean, was this a crime of opportunity or was it premeditated? Was the weapon a weapon of opportunity? Or did the killer bring the weapon, which, oh my gosh, that suggests a level of intent that's really disturbing. Okay, and then there's the scene itself, okay? There's a puzzle that just keeps everyone guessing. There were no signs of forced entry, which suggests that Jimmy either knew his attacker or the assailant had another way to gain entry, but without breaking in. Yeah, the evidence of a struggle, of course, was unmistakable. They said furniture was overturned, and it was clear that a violent, very violent confrontation had taken place because Jimmy was brutally beaten to his death. They described it as a blood-soaked scene, the telephone, the rugs, pictures hanging on the walls. The details about Jimmy Frecker's discovery are pretty disturbing. He was found propped up right against his own back door wearing only T-shirt and boxers, both soaked in blood. But why? What was the motive behind this gruesome act? Was it robbery gone wrong? Or a personal vendetta? Or even something more sinister? These questions haunt the investigation. The lack of forced entry and the severity of Jimmy's entries, the absence of a clear motive, they all combine to form a mystery that's as baffling as it is tragic. And as we dive deeper into this case... Each new detail adds another layer to the story of Jimmy's untimely death. Sheriff Bernie Gibson and his team hit the ground running. They combed through Jimmy's life looking for anything out of place. But this case wasn't going to be easy to crack. With every lead that fizzled out, the frustration grew both for the cops and for those who knew Jimmy. He was known for his punctuality and routine and was supposed to be clocked in at the Burnham Broiler plant that night. But in a twist that raised many an eyebrow, he wasn't there. He had switched shifts with a co-worker. You know, that's a seemingly simple act, but one that would later prove fatal. What prompted this change, guys? Was it just a coincidence or did this shift switch which did it just added, it just did. It added another layer to the mystery of that day, what happened. After the grim discovery of Jimmy's body, it was transported to Good Samaritan Medical Center, where coroner E.J. Booth did the autopsy. Now, the community was hoping he could shed some light on this perplexing case. The autopsy was meticulous. Dr. Booth examined every detail, every mark, that could unravel the story of Jimmy's final hours. And the findings were sobering. According to Coroner Booth, Jimmy met his untimely death sometime between midnight and 8 a.m. on that Saturday. And the cause of death was severe head trauma. Now, for those interested in a more detailed aspect of this case, we've managed to get a hold of Jimmy's autopsy report, which we'll be sharing on our Facebook group in the files section. You can look at the tox reports and, you know, details and things like that, because the best witness of a murder is the body. All right, listen, here's some questions for y'all. Listen, how did a man known for his quiet life 
suffer such a violent end. The time frame was very broad, leaving a gaping window in which anything could have happened, right? And remember, his body wasn't even found until 7.30 that evening, almost 12 hours after the latest time he could have been seen alive. Why? Ha well, could have been alive. What happened in those missing hours? Who knew Jimmy was alone that night? Or did they? Was it a surprise? If it was robbery, was anything taken? Because we never heard that. There's there's nothing reported to that. If so, what, what was it taken? Could that be a clue? Now, neighbors didn't hear anything while a brutal battle was going on next door. And who was the last person besides the killer who saw Jimmy that night? Now, as we ask these questions, the mystery of what really happened to Jimmy and those unaccounted hours, well, it looms large, right? His unexpected shift change, the brutal nature of his death, the time gap between his death and discovery of the body, it just shows a complicated story. And we're still trying to unravel it. Eventually, a couple suspects had run through Sheriff Gibson's mind as the investigator just kept on chugging along. It was all a head-scratcher for law enforcement and the community, and especially for Jimmy's friends. Now, the ongoing investigation into the tragic murder of Jimmy took a significant turn when law enforcement let it be known they had a primary suspect. Now, folks, we're going to take a break right here. We'll be right back. Explaining that Sheriff Gibson had a suspect. Well, this person was incarcerated on unrelated charges in the local jail. Sheriff Gibson confirmed that the suspect, whose name remained undisclosed, had been sentenced to the penitentiary for a year on separate charges. So Sheriff Gibson also maintained that the department had enough evidence to convict someone in the murder. Meaning there was plenty of blood and forensics. Now, Gibson declined to comment on a possible motive. When Frecker's life came to a brutal end on March 24th at his residence, at first, Sheriff Gibson emphasized that they didn't have a suspect. But now, he says, no other individuals, none. There was just this one. No other individuals but were involved. But he refrained from revealing the suspect's identity due to the absence of formal charges. 
Now, he made this latest claim of a suspect just 20 days after the murder. Now, that poor dude, I'm sure people in the community who, who he was, I mean, that's a bullseye on his back, wouldn't you think? The sheriff would not divulge the name of the suspect, but said no one else was involved. That just gets me right there. The sheriff explained he can't say the suspect's name any more than he can say about the Huffman case, because that suspect also has not been charged. Well, the Samuel Huffman case, he was 26, and he was a Zane Zone. He was found in the Muskingum River on August 12, 1990, and his death was under investigation at the time of Jimmy's murder. And you guys, that case is crazy. You need to look at it. Many questions. Many, many questions. It's not a cold case. They say they solved it, but it's a very strange case. All right. As the investigation trudged on, the town's patients were wearing thin. People were talking. Of course, they were at the grocery store, at their church, over coffee. There was a sense of unease, the need for answers. Boy, we get that, right? We have that going on right now. Jimmy's friends and family were especially hit hard. For them, this wasn't just, you know, a newspaper headline. It was personal. In our quest to understand Jimmy's life and tragic end, one aspect we couldn't overlook was his sexuality. Because Jimmy was gay, and in 1990, that fact alone could have been made life pretty tough for him. There were murmurs in the community. Could this have been a hate crime? Now, I want to say this too. In 1969, Jimmy was in juvenile court when he was 25 years old, and he was ordered committed to Lima State Hospital because he was arrested on March 11th on charges of contributing to the delinquency of 19 boys ages 12 to 15 years by taking indecent liberties with them. At the time, he was sent to Lima for psychiatric evaluation. Having been judged a psychopath offender, Jimmy pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to six months in jail. Now, this is all the information I could find. I really wish I could say more, but this is all the information I could find out. Um, you guys know more. We would love to hear from you. So in 1990, it was a time when prejudice ran deep and often went unchecked. But as we dug deeper and we conduct interviews and we spoke to those who knew Jimmy, there was a different picture that came around. Despite the challenges of those times, it seemed that Jimmy was accepted by his community. There wasn't any buzz about him being harassed or targeted because of who he was. This was both really good. It felt good, but it was, you know, it was perplexing, too, because if it wasn't a hate crime, then what was the motive? Our investigation took us down every avenue, including Jimmy's personal life. Now, I searched for a partner, a love interest, someone who might help us understand more, but every road led to a dead end. Now, as the investigation trudged on for Sheriff Bernie Gibson, he was just not passively waiting for leads, months into the case, he expressed loudly and with confidence that he was proud of the evidence that he, they had gathered. There was a sense that the pieces of the puzzle were slowly coming together, even if the bigger picture was still unclear. One key detail that Sheriff Gibson kept circling back to was the lack of forced entry at Jimmy's home. It was as if Jimmy had willingly let his assailant in, which that 
suggestion is really a chilling possibility because that means Jimmy might have known his killer. Now, this revelation brought a new dimension to the case because if Jimmy knew his attacker, what have, could have gone terribly wrong? Was it a meeting that spiraled out of control or an argument that turned deadly? The lack of forced entry combined with the fact that Jimmy was not even supposed to be home that night, remember? He was scheduled to work and he was in his t-shirts and boxers. Well, that only deepens the questions. Danita Smith's letter to the editor, which we'll have that on our Facebook group, plus law enforcement's reply, which we have that too, were just the tip of the iceberg because the community was crying out for justice, you know, for some kind of revelation. People were starting to wonder if this case would ever be solved. The Sheriff's Department was under pressure and they knew about the challenges, the mountains of evidence, and also the gaping holes. Talking about evidence, they had collected so much evidence that the FBI actually cracked a joke. This was in print. This was reported saying that the collected, that they had collected the whole house, leaving only the frame. Yet you guys, all that evidence turns out, they say, to be the victims, blood, fingerprints, any DNA collected. They say all of that was Jimmy's. Now remember, this was back in the day. Hasn't been tested since. We don't know. Look at all the new technology. Have they tested it? Because nobody is out there fighting for Jimmy Frecker. Nobody is out there saying, retest this. But we can be his voice. All right, listen. The Sheriff's Department said that was all they had, right? Well, the Frecker family wasn't closely involved in the investigation, okay? They aren't now either. Jimmy's sisters, they lived in Columbus, and his brothers were scattered between Malta and Crooksville. They kind of drifted apart. You know, it wasn't like most families. They weren't tightly knit. There's nobody to speak for Jimmy, folks. We need to be his voice. Now, that close-knit friend, uh, Danita Smith, she questions why. If there's so much evidence, come on. Why hasn't there been an arrest? She said if someone important was killed, they would have cracked the case by now. She continued by saying how frustrating it is seeing no progress. And the couple who discovered Frecker's body, well, they had undergone tremendous emotional stress leading to their divorce. Oh my goodness. Can you only imagine? The man had struggled with sleep ever since and turned to heavy drinking. His mother shared how he had disciplined himself for days after the incident. Can you imagine what he's seen? I'm, and that's your bud, your roommate. Uh, following the discovery of the body, the man was extensively questioned by the authorities because he discovered him, right? But the individual alibi was confirmed. He was in jail for drunk driving offense during Frecker's murder, which is a good thing, right? And, you know, in a way, yes, it saved his life, probably. He was extremely relieved that his alibi did hold. The roommates, and this is sad, the roommates, they had plans to treat Jimmy to a meal using their income tax money they had gotten that day. He'd gotten out of jail. They went, checked, yep, income tax came. They were going to take Jimmy, all of them, go out for a meal. We found out that Jimmy's friend and the person who found him, that guy, his name was Brian Wolfter, and he had since passed away. And some of Frecker's acquaintances are hesitant to speak publicly, bearing repercussions from the killer still. 
They speculate that someone might have broken in and countered Frecker unexpectedly, and that led to the tragedy. All right, well, now we're going to fast forward two years to 1992, and prosecutor Alan Wolf, well, he was gearing up to take everything they had to a grand jury. But it was an uphill battle, and they knew it. There was evidence, sure, but not the smoking gun they needed. The town was watching and waiting. Would this be a break they were hoping for? No, it was not. The grand jury denied the case to go to trial without more evidence. Now, as the years roll by, the memory of Jimmy Frecker, well, it refuses to fade into the background. His story, marked by unanswered questions and a community's grief, it remains a vivid part of Zanesville collective memories. There's people out there that still remember Jimmy. Working with him at the plant, I have heard nothing but nice reports, nice comments about Jimmy. Jimmy's house, which was once a symbol, symbol of the unsolved mystery, eventually found new ownership. The broiler factory where he worked, well, they took over the property and they tore down the house, which is now a parking lot. But for many in the town... That place still echoes with the memories of what happened to Jimmy. The sale of his house was more than just a transaction because, well, it was, it was like a physical sign of time moving on. Yet in the hearts and minds of those who remember Jimmy, time still stands still. The house might have changed hands and be gone, and the life in Zanesville has continued, but the mystery of Jimmy's untimely death remains an open wound. The town itself seemed to be in a state of suspension, hovering between the past with its unresolved sorrow and the hope for a future where the truth would finally come to light. People went about their daily lives, but conversation would often drift back to Jimmy, to theories and speculation, to shared frustrations over the lack of closure. As new faces come to town and the younger generation grows up, the story of Jimmy Fecker will be passed down a sober reminder of the mystery that had once shaken this close-knit community. Will there ever be a resolution? Will there lingering questions that haunted Muskingum County ever find answers? The legacy of Jimmy Frecker's life and the mystery of his death become intertwined with the identity of the town itself. Zanesville, caught in this limbo, continued to wait and wonder. Would the mystery that held them captive for years ever be unraveled? All right, folks, let's take another break right here real quick, and we'll be back.
Okay, this is a good time to remind you guys that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Everybody is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. I am not a professional anything. I am just a gal with a mic and a big passion for justice. Okay, we're back. Let's continue. All right, six years down the line in 1996, Detective Brian Hoover was still piecing together this puzzle. It's a case that has even seen false confessions. Despite a man confessing to the murder after reading about it in the newspaper, he was quickly ruled out due to personal reasons unrelated to the case. It was actually reported that the individual was struggling with mental health issues big time. Although the investigation is inactive today uh, and that day, the unnamed suspect, well, he remained available for inquiries that they wanted to ask him. Also, there was a David Grither, a Zanesville police supervisor at the time. He remembered providing a lead to sheriff, uh, the sheriff's office regarding a potential suspect. The, this person had prior contact with Frecker, which emerged during a traffic violation shortly after the murder. Now, there were many dead ends, guys, and more questions than answers. The folks in Muskingum County are still waiting, still hoping that one day they'll know the truth about what happened to Jimmy. Okay, before we wrap up today's episode, there's something important I want to talk to you about. Jimmy's story isn't just a mystery from the past, okay? It's an unsolved murder, a community member that was killed. So if we do anything here, please take away the love Jimmy had and that you walk among murderers. So if you remember anything, even the smallest detail about Jimmy or what happened that night, please consider sharing it with us or law enforcement. It might be something you overheard just once or something you saw but didn't think much of it at the time. Or maybe just a rumor that floated around town. You, because often it's these little pieces that complete the bigger picture. And I know, seriously, I get it. Coming forward, that can be very, very overwhelming. But listen, it's not just about solving a case. It's about bringing some peace to Jimmy's memory. And those who knew and loved him, this man was loved. There's nobody around to speak and seek justice for this man. So let's join forces in this. It's amazing what we can do when we come together. Your voice, your memories could light the way to the truth. It's time. It's time for us to help bring some closure to Jimmy's story. We're all a part of this community. This is our community. Every bit of information counts. Okay, well, that's a glimpse into Jimmy Frecker's story. The tale of a man who lived quietly met a brutal end and left an entire town grappling for answers. His story isn't just a cold case, like I said. It's a stark reminder of how elusive truth can be, and yet how vital it is in our search for justice and closure. But hold on, we're not done yet. In our next episode, we're going to dive even deeper into Jimmy Frecker's case. We're, we've been digging. And let me tell you, there's more to this story than meets the eye. We've uncovered not just one, but four individuals who might hold key pieces to this puzzle. And yes, folks, we've got something big. I've managed to uncover the main suspect who was in Sheriff Gibson's mind. And I have actually spoken to him on the phone. He was very nice. And I'm hoping to get an interview with him. 
So stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be an eye-opener, and you won't want to miss it. All right, folks, that's it for this episode of Death, Lies, and Alibis. We hope that by shining a light on these local cold crimes, we've sparked something within you, our listeners. Because the truth is, solving these cases will take more than just our words. It's going to require the dedication and collective efforts of the entire community. Don't forget to hit the follow button on the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And to learn more about how to get your case featured on the show or to get instant access to case files and reports plus documents and many free resources, go to our Facebook group, Death, Lies, and Alibis, and join today. Or email us at deathliesalibis at gmail.com. As always, be safe, stay alert, and never stop seeking justice. And I just want to say here really quick, if you listened to us before, you heard that we have new music on this episode. I want to thank my very personal and awesome friend, Jack Quinn. He did this, produced it, did all the thing by himself, that music. It's awesome, as always, as you are, my friend. Thank you. Shout out.